The Bob Murphy Show, episode 304. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. I am happy to announce the launch of a new mini-series within The Bob Murphy Show that I am titling An Interdisciplinary Commentary on the Gospel Accounts of Jesus Christ. So as the title suggests, what I'm going to be doing is going through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and giving commentary, which will draw upon all of my... uh, knowledge of various fields. Okay. So to be clear, you might've expected me to do something like, Oh, an economic commentary on the gospels. And I'm not doing that because number one, um, it's, that would be misleading, right? Cause then people would be like, Oh yeah, he's going to talk about like the parable of the talents or something. And you know, you'd think, Oh, look at here and notice Jesus isn't taxing people in order to feed the hungry. Instead, he's creating it on his own through his own power. And so therefore, you know, that has no relevance for government redistribution. And, you know, maybe when we get to those passages, I will give that sort of commentary and reaction that you would have expected from someone like me. But I wouldn't want to limit myself in the title to saying economic commentary, because as you're going to see, as we get into it, it's a lot more than just, oh, yeah, I know libertarian political theory and free market economics. And so here's my thoughts on reading the accounts of Jesus' life. Okay, so that's the main thing. Also, another thing is that there have been other economic commentaries on the Bible. One famous one that many of my listeners will be familiar with is Gary North's. And so I want to just be clear that, no, what I'm embarking upon here is not going to be like any of those other things you may be familiar with. The closest... uh analogy or example of what I'm trying to uh, achieve here is, of course, Jordan Peterson's commentary on the Old Testament. I mean, he only got through a a few books, as I recall. Um, And there, you know, he was coming from a psychological perspective, right? Of course, drawing on his expertise as uh, a PhD and person who had written many peer-reviewed articles in the field and so forth and had a lot of clinical experience. Okay, so, but again, as we'll see as we go through it, it's not um, me just relying upon the fact that, oh yeah, I'm a trained economist. I should also mention, I do have plans uh, at some point of really studying more and, and getting formal training in theological matters. Okay. And so, you know, maybe I will revisit this and write further on these matters down the road. But 
it it's at the point, and I had I had struggled with it. I shared my thoughts with some people whose opinion I value, and you know, some were saying, "Well, maybe you should go get more formal training before you start commenting on the Bible." And I take that very seriously. But as we'll see, I think I have enough material and things to share that I believe will help people. Um, that I, th- I think it's time for me to start doing this. Um, you know, I, I prayed about it and I, I think that I'm supposed to go ahead and do this. And as we'll see, a lot of it is going to be, because I think this is the the role that Jordan Peterson played is I think he gave permission to atheists to take the Bible seriously, right? Cause he wasn't saying, Oh, look at this is the inspired word of God. And that's why you should believe this. Otherwise you're going to go burn in hell. Obviously, a lot of people who don't come into the conversation already believing that are going to recoil from such statements. But instead saying, hey, look, there's a lot of wisdom in these stories, even if at first glance they seem barbaric and primitive. And, oh, yeah, these are the uh, scribblings of some primitive people that say, oh, no, I am a cutting-edge psychologist with all kinds of experience in the field and lots of clinical uh, experience dealing with patients and – there is a ton of wisdom in these old accounts, and that's why they persist. That's why the Bible is so famous, and it's it's you know such an enduring book because there's a lot of wisdom in here about human nature, right? And so then a lot of people start taking – and I know people, or at least one person, I should say, who started out as an atheist and then really got into Jordan Peterson and listened to the Bible commentary and then ended up becoming Christian. Okay, so uh, in terms of uh, evangelizing, that's partly – why I think this is appropriate for me to do. Okay, so having said all that, what I'm going to do in this introductory episode is not dive right into the gospel accounts. And by the way, I'm going to start with the gospel of John, and you'll see why. Because the thing that tipped me over the edge about, is it time for me to do this or not? Should I prepare more? Is I had an epiphany last week at this point regarding the opening of the gospel of John and, you know, Jesus being the logos. And that's what I'm going to start with when I really get in, you know, formally begin as opposed to this introductory episode talking about the mini series. All right. And you'll see what that is when I get into it. (laughs) Okay. Also just to avoid confusion, this is not going to be back to back to back to back to back episodes of the Bob Murphy show. Even at this point, I have other interviews that are already in the can and we're going to release them, you know, so it'll be, this series will be interspersed among other more standard episodes of the Bob Murphy show. So just to avoid confusion. Okay. So what am I doing in this episode besides announcing what this mini series is? I'm going to give you some of the takeaways from a chapter I wrote recently for Walter Block's Festricht, which is the German word for it's a collection of uh, colleagues put together to honor an academic peer. Okay. And typically it's like somebody who's older and maybe retiring. I don't know the exact uh, tradition in terms of like coming over from Europe, but that's the idea that certainly people in Austro libertarian circles have picked that up. And so they will go ahead and you know write a bunch of essays in honor of or uh, in recognition of somebody. And what's cool about it is 
you are allowed to, and in some cases, encouraged to disagree with the person, right? So it's not just saying, oh, yeah, this guy or this woman was a great thinker and had all these innovations, and let's apply their framework to this new area. It, it doesn't – I mean, it can be that kind of a thing, but it doesn't need to be. It can, in fact, be, yeah, this is a great thinker and da-da-da-da, but you know what? This one idea that they're so famous for I think is totally wrong, and here's why. Okay, so you're allowed to – and especially with Walter in particular who absolutely loves to – intellectually brawl with people um, if for no other reason than it gives him a reason to get more pubs under his belt when he responds. Um, it's entirely appropriate. And so that's why in my particular article here, I am largely disagreeing with a lot of things that Walter has said. Okay. So why don't I, I'll read you the, the abstract of this and then I'll, I'll try to avoid just verbatim quoting from the paper because that might just feel wooden to you folks listening. But at certain times, like if I make a point that requires precision, I may just end up reading. And obviously if I'm quoting somebody else that I'm responding to, it'll I'll read the thing. Okay, but here's the abstract. This chapter, oh sorry, the title, probably want the title, right? Is Reconciling God with Libertarian Theory. And then the uh, blurb is this chapter seeks to incorporate the possibility of the biblical God with standard frameworks in the Austro-Libertarian paradigm, including Misesian praxeology and Hoppe's argumentation ethics. It demonstrates that the ostensible paradoxes of the biblical God fall away when taking his nature seriously, and that leading arguments for libertarian ethics are susceptible to objections based on one's theological views. Okay, and then let me... Uh, Mentions some of the backstory here. So here, I'll, I'll just read from it. Is a final component of this introduction. Let me explain the backstory of my topic. Years ago, I emailed Walter to pitch to him a co-authored article arguing that if the Genesis account were historically accurate, then the God of the Bible would be the rightful owner of the material universe, according to standard libertarian theory, and could set whatever rules for his tenets that he desired. Walter wrote back, it would be an honor to co-authors anything with you, no matter how weird. This is pretty weird. Let me think about this. Right, so that was what he sent to me on October 1st, 2016. And I carry that around as a badge of honor. <laughs> like I would even mention that to people like occasionally say, uh, you know, one time I pitched an idea to Walter and he wrote back and just said, wow, that's almost too weird for me. But, but what's funny is I kind of dropped the ball on that. And then when I went to go write this chapter for, you know, this this book honoring him, I went and dug up that email thread and I I realized he actually did get back to me. Okay, so in other words, I thought the story ended with him just saying, "Wow, this is pretty weird, Bob." <laughs> and I, you know, and I had that as a feather in my cap that, "Wow, I proposed something so nutty that even Walter Block wouldn't write with me on it." But he actually did come back and say, "Okay, look, you know, how would we do it?" and blah blah blah. And then I said, "Yeah, I'm swamped right now. Let me get back to you." And I never did. And I actually forgot that we had that tail end of that exchange. Okay, so that's, you know, then I go on in the article to say, so I dropped the ball on that, but better late than never. Here's me single-handedly now, not using him as a co-author, uh, filling that gap. Okay, but again, we're, we're doing more in this chapter than just making that particular point. So one thing I want to address, the, the first thing I tackle is in human action, Mises actually has... Um, a train of thought where he says that the very notion of the biblical God doesn't make sense, or certainly you couldn't reconcile it with praxeology. 
So let me go ahead and I'll, I'll read fast, but uh, let me give somewhat of a lengthy excerpt here just so that you understand where Mises is coming from and we don't uh, treat him unfairly. So again, this is Mises from Human Action. The praxeological categories and concepts are devised for the comprehension of human action. They become self-contradictory and nonsensical if one tries to apply them in dealing with conditions different from those of human life. The naive anthropomorphism of primitive religions is unpalatable to the philosophic mind. However, the endeavors of philosophers to define neatly the attributes of an absolute being, free from all the limitations and frailties of human existence, by the use of praxeological concepts, are no less questionable. Scholastic philosophers and theologians, and likewise theists and deists of the age of reason, conceived an absolute and perfect being, unchangeable, omnipotent, and omniscient, and yet planning and acting, aiming at ends and employing means for the attainment of these ends. But action can only be imputed to a discontented being, and repeated action only to a being who lacks the power to remove his uneasiness once and for all at one stroke. An acting being is discontented and therefore not almighty. If he were contented, he would not act, and if he were almighty, he would have long since radically removed his discontent. For an all-powerful being, there is no pressure to choose between various states of uneasiness. He is not under the necessity of acquiescing in the lesser evil. Omnipotence would mean the power to achieve everything and to enjoy full satisfaction without being restrained by any limitations, but this is incompatible with the very concept of action. For an almighty being, the categories of ends and means do not exist. He is above all human comprehension, concepts, and understanding. For the almighty being, every means renders unlimited services, and he can apply every means for the attainment of any ends. He can achieve every end without the employment of any means. It is beyond the faculties of the human mind to think the concept of almightiness consistently to its ultimate logical consequences. The paradoxes are insoluble. Has the almighty being the power to achieve something which is immune to his later interference? If he has this power then there are limits to his might, and he is no longer almighty. If he lacks this power, he is by virtue of this fact alone not almighty. Are omnipotence and omniscience compatible? Omniscience presupposes that all future happenings are already unalterably determined. If there is omniscience, omnipotence is inconceivable. Impotence to change anything in the predetermined course of events would restrict the power of any agent. Okay, so that's again Mises from Human Action, um, it's pages 69 and 70 of the scholar's edition. Okay. So prima facie, that sounds pretty, pretty serious, right? And I have know that plenty of atheist Austrians believe Mises just blew up the idea of the Christian God. And I don't think so. I think the problem here is he's not taking seriously what it would mean if such a being existed. Okay, so as an analogy, suppose we're dealing with the human creator of a comic strip, and there's four panes in the strip, right? So now we're reading it from left to right, and you know it's in chronological order. But of course, what we mean is the chronology as it unfolds in the world of the comic strip. All right, so the person, the human being who creates the comic strip obviously is outside of that timeline. And to that person, it's not that before or after necessarily correspond to moving left to right. And obviously, I mean, for one thing, for all we know, the person actually drew the fourth pane first, 
you know, with his pencil or whatever he uses to make the comic strip. But even if he did draw it out from left to right, the creator of the comic strip knew already what was going to happen in pain four when he starts drawing up pain one. Right, whatever the punchline is going to be, if it's going to be funny or whatever the profundity is going to be, if it's going to be like a, oh, wow, that's deep kind of a, you know, bit. Okay. And so then you can imagine in the world of the comic strip, imagine if one of the characters is philosophical and then says, you know, so here I'll, I'll directly quote, imagine, you know, if there's a word bubble around him and says, we can't even imagine a creator of this world with the power to do anything because after all, why would he or it be waiting until time step four to make my neighbor here say the punchline? Why would this supposedly omnipotent creator not satisfy his or its felt uneasiness sooner rather than later? Right. So you follow that, that I'm saying if the characters in the comic strip were pondering you know deep questions and saying oh maybe there's a creator of this comic strip who made us and again one of them might say well then why do we are there four time steps here that you know why wouldn't everything just all be satisfied in one pain like what why would it take the passage of time in order for the punchline to come out you know if it's a joke comic strip that doesn't make any sense right and so you can see that again if we stipulate that there really is a character in a comic strip who's thinking like that, that would be goofy. They didn't in any way invalidate the possibility that there could have been an external creator of the comic strip. And the fundamental fallacy is to assume the passage of time in the comic strip is likewise experienced by the external agent who created the comic strip when no, that's not what happens. All right. And so likewise, in the real world, God, if he created things according to the Bible, you know, in that fashion, is in a sense outside of our timeline. And, you know, he can conceive it all at one fell swoop. And so we experience the passage of time. But, you know, when God created the universe in the beginning, he already knew what was going to happen at the end of time in terms of you know, the material, physical universe. And so for Mises to be saying, oh, why would he have waited around to achieve his ends? N no, you, you could argue from God's point of view, he made a single decision and took a single action and created the entire timeline from his perspective all in one fell swoop. He just decided, yes, this is what I'm going to do. Boom, and it's done. And he's, uh, you know, eternal. It's not that from his perspective... He was half complete at one point in time, and then we take a snapshot later, and he's three-quarters complete with his mission or his work. That No. But if what he's creating is itself a universe that has the passage of time, then events would unfold in the timeline of that universe, and it would make sense to say, oh, on the third day, God created such and such, and then on the fourth day, he created such and such. Okay, but again, it's that's like uh, the characters in the comic strip – experiencing the passage of time and saying, oh, first we were drawn in pain number one, and then we were drawn in pain number two, and so the creator must have, okay, all right, I think you get that. And then I, I try to drive it home and I say, um, supposing Charlie Brown threw his back out trying to kick the football, and the concerned Linus then prayed to the creator of the comic strip who had the power to heal him. 
In such a scenario, it would hardly refute Linus if Lucy demanded, could this mythical Charles Schultz make a doghouse so heavy that he himself couldn't make it fly? Okay, so if you're not from if you're not familiar with the uh, Peanuts comic strip, that won't make any sense. But I thought that was kind of a clever way to to illustrate just how goofy this objection from Mises actually is. All right, so to be clear, I didn't just prove that God exists. Rather, what I did is I showed that Mises' argument to the concept of an omniscient, omnipotent being that created the heavens and the earth is a goofy objection. All right, if such a being did exist, if the Genesis account were true, then Mises' objections would be as goofy as, again, if in the Peanuts comic strip, somehow Linus came to realize that their creator was this guy, Charles Schultz, and said, oh, you know, if you're suffering Charlie Brown, Charles Schultz certainly has the power to fix whatever it is. He can do anything in this world. He, he's completely omnipotent vis-a-vis us and the things that happen to us. And then again, it would be goofy if Lucy then said, oh, okay, so could he make a doghouse so heavy that it can't fly? And that's a reference because Snoopy goes on the thing and pretends to be the World War I flying ace. And so the doghouse flies in those little excursions of Snoopy's imagination. All right. So you notice there, yeah, there is kind of a contradiction, right? Like you could say, could Charles Schutz make a doghouse so heavy in the Peanuts world that even he then would lack the power to have Snoopy climb on it and pretend to be a baron and flying it around? And, you know, there's different ways you might want to answer that question. But in no circumstances would your answer then mean, or, or the fact that I could pose such a question doesn't mean, so therefore this notion that there's a Charles Schutz who created the, the Peanuts comic strip in, in a sense is God compared to that universe. I didn't just refute that and say, well, no, because I can pose this question about could he make a doghouse so heavy that he himself can't make it fly? Therefore, no, the comic strip must have just arisen through natural means and there is no creator of the Peanuts comic strip. You see what I'm saying? That the fact that we can pose these things that it's not obvious at first glance how you resolve the apparent paradox doesn't mean <laughs> the whole enterprise of positing an external creator who is omnipotent and omniscient vis-a-vis that created world, that doesn't follow at all. Okay. Let's take a break from the action, folks, to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on The Bob Murphy Show, it would be great if you gave some support. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to figure out the details. But hey, this isn't a shakedown. I'm going to do it whether or not you support, but it does help. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to the action. So now here, um, I don't necessarily have a specific quote from a libertarian atheist to motivate this, but it, it was more you know me trying to resolve some long-standing apparent conflicts with biblical statements about the nature of God and just about free will in general. So that's that's why I thought this was still relevant for this chapter because as we'll see here, I'm trying to reconcile God's sovereignty with libertarian free will. And that word libertarian there is not the political libertarianism. It's not referring to, oh yeah, Walter Block's a libertarian. It's referring to in the philosophical tradition there's a notion of free will that's called libertarian free will, you know, meaning 
that you know people really do have free will as opposed to just apparent free will, right? Depending on certain philosophical or metaphysical uh, positions one might take, you know. So, in other words, a lot of atheists walking around today deny that humans really have free will. Either like they might focus on cultural forces. Oh yeah, that guy's a bank robber and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, look at the neighborhood he grew up in and really he had no choice. And if you were born in his position, you would have ended up doing the same thing. So we can't judge him, right? So there's that kind of element. But then also, uh, you know, people familiar with physics could say, well, gee, in a sense, your body is merely a collection of atoms obeying the laws of physics. And even if we bring in quantum uncertainty, it's not that... Um, yeah, we can't fully predict the future state of, you know, this electron or whatever. But that's not because really there's some soul somewhere that's making choices and what appears to us to be random is actually the soul's will being met. You know what I mean? Like that's they say no, no, no. When we say there's quantum indeterminacy, we really mean it. It's not that that's just a shorthand for our ignorance. Like no, it really is the case that the universe itself doesn't know which way that electrons going to go or what state it's going to be in or blah, 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 you know, until it's realized. And, and thus, you know, the, be, the, the motion of the cells in your body is practically deterministic. It's certainly not something that your will controls at the end of the day. And so therefore, what does it mean to say we have free will if from the moment we become aware the things that our body does in the material universe are pinned down for all intents and purposes. And if they're and to the extent that they're not that like right now, we technically don't know the exact position of every cell in your body 24 hours from now. The reason for our ignorance on that is due to inbuilt uncertainties or unpredictability in the laws of physics. It's not because, you're actually making choices behind the scenes and we can't anticipate what your choices are. That's not what it is, right? So there's one school of thought that has that view. And so they also deny the possibility of free will. Okay. So what I'm saying is, I think there's a way you could be a Bible-believing Christian. And by the way, with all this stuff, a lot of my points, a a uh, you know devout Muslim or a devout Jew could also endorse, you know, and, and my specific arguments could help them in their worldviews too, right? So I'm not, but obviously I am a Christian myself, and so that's where I'm coming from is to make sure my own worldview is internally consistent and that I can deal with objections that I've seen leveled against it. Okay, so I think there is a way to reconcile God's sovereignty with human libertarian free will. But just to motivate, you know, what's the apparent problem here? So, for example, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, it says, and I'm using the New King James. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. All right, so that's among other places where this notion of predestination comes from. And there it's you know certainly not that, well, God's going to watch how you act in your life and 
He says, okay, I'm keeping tabs on you. And okay, you committed some sins there. Oh, but you helped the old lady across the street. That's pretty good. And it's not that. And it's not even, okay, God's waiting and waiting and waiting. And do you freely choose to accept Jesus into your heart? Yes, you did when you were 28 years old. And so therefore you get into heaven. That's not what that passage sounds like either, does it? It sounds like before you had anything to do with it, you were predestined to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ, right? That it had nothing to do with you whatsoever, okay? Um, and then, okay, so here, let, let me, at this point, it'd probably be easier, just let me read some of what I wrote here. One obvious attempt to reconcile these thorny problems is to posit that God merely predicts what humans will freely choose to do, and so this biblical talk of predestination is one of anticipation, not causation. This interpretation makes sense of cases where humans choose sinful behavior, but God redeems the situation. For example, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, but it turns out it was all for the best because he eventually lands in Egypt where he becomes the Pharaoh's right-hand man sparing the tribes of Israel as well as numerous Egyptians from starvation. And that's from Genesis 37 through 45. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers years after they'd assumed he was dead, he famously tells them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Okay, so I'm saying thus far, you might be able to reconcile some of this stuff by saying, okay, yeah, um, you know, humans have free will still, but God's plan ultimately triumphs and it's because God anticipates what everybody's going to do. And he kind of just steers events so that when they do sinful things, you know, that, that he can't really stop, but he turns it. So, okay, I use that to achieve a better long run and you know, that kind of stuff, which is fine. As far as I go. I'm not saying that's wrong. Like there's definitely that element in there. And again, Joseph's famous statement there that I just read. And of course, you know, the, the ultimate is Jesus dying on the cross, right? That Satan would have thought, ha what more could I do to totally cause eternal enmity between God and man than by tricking them, you know, relying on their avarice and greed and lusts and jealousy and blah, 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 to literally kill the Messiah, right? <laughs> when he was going around just giving amazing sermons and healing people and they killed him in a horrible way too. It's not that they gave him lethal injection in his sleep. Um, and yet that is the centerpiece of our salvation in the Christian view, right? So God taking the worst thing humans ever did and making that the cornerstone of our forgiveness and salvation, which, you know, on the face of it sounds kind of insane, but yet, you know, if God's, if good's going to conquer evil and God's going to totally destroy Satan and show that, no, you have no power here, it would be something like that, wouldn't it? Even though that's not something that people just inventing a fake religion would have come up with because on the face of it, that does sound weird. I get, I grant you. Okay. So there, there is that element. Don't get me wrong. But there's other passages in the Bible where it seems like it's more than merely, yep, humans have free will to sin. And then God just like, okay, let me see. What are they going to do? Okay, well, geez, given that they're going to, well, let me do this. Because listen to this. So this is... uh God talking to Moses and, and here's God's like giving Moses a head up, a heads up, like, Hey, this is what's going to go down here. So just get ready for it. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and Aaron, your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Right? Here's the key part folks. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Okay, so again, that key phrase, God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Right? He doesn't say, and you know, in a perfect world, Pharaoh would do the right thing and let you guys go because slavery is wrong. He doesn't say that. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay, so that's, again, that's unexpected. It was to me. Right? When I was younger and I read that, I had trouble with that passage because it sounds like, prima facie, God is making Pharaoh sin. Okay? So be, be clear, folks. I'm not saying that is what's happening. I'm just saying prima facie, you could be forgiven for thinking that's what it's saying, right? Okay. So obviously, these are some huge problems, and they have occupied some of the greatest thinkers of humanity, you know, the greatest theologians and even secular people who just, you know, pontificate on these things. But let me just give my standard two analogies, and, and partly why I put this into, into the chapter here is I've said these before on the podcast in bits and places, maybe on other interviews when this stuff comes up, but I don't know that I ever written it down somewhere. And I just, I wanted to make sure I got this down in print uh, to make sure uh, it's documented. Okay. So first analogy is with Star Wars. And notice that in the world of Star Wars, there is a distinction between literally being forced to do something and choosing to do something, even though you're misled. So specifically, uh, you know, famous scene in the first one where uh, Ben Kenobi is with Luke and they're going into, uh, you know, the the hive of villainy or whatever that phrase is about to say. And the stormtroopers stop him at the checkpoint because they're looking for the droids, right? And... Kenobi, you know, famously uses the force, you know, waves his hand and says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And then the stormtrooper says to, you know, his subordinates, these aren't the droids we're looking for. They can move along and let them go. Okay, so there, Kenobi, you know, used a Jedi mind trick and literally took over that guy's mind. And so later, like if Darth Vader's mad at the guy, I mean, he might still kill him just because he's not the fairest uh, person. But technically, that stormtrooper didn't, betray his allegiance to Darth Vader by letting the, the you know, the Jedi, well, he didn't know he was a Jedi, by letting um, the droids go, go by, right? That Kenobi took over his mind, okay? In contrast, Emperor, or was he the Emperor at the time? Well, Palpatine, as he's becoming Emperor, slowly, if you know, in the first episodes one through three, uh, slowly seduces Anakin into the dark side, Okay, so it's not that Anakin just goes from being a happy-go-lucky kid who was really cute and everything and a nice kid into slaughtering younglings on his own, right? He had this malevolent being who was lying to him and doing all kinds of things, appealing to his vanity and so forth to turn him to the dark side. But it's not that Palpatine did a Jedi mind trick or whatever, a Sith mind trick, and forced Anakin to become evil. That's not what happened. He tricked him, you could use that word, but Anakin chose to become evil, right? He he made a bad mistake. He did something very immoral. He did many immoral things, 
right? Whereas, again, that first stormtrooper, that really wasn't his fault, okay? So you do see those distinctions. But now let me make another distinction. So even though I just said in the world of Star Wars, Anakin is should be held to be morally responsible for his crimes, what if I say, well... It's not that the emperor forced Anakin to do bad things, but didn't George Lucas force him to do bad things? So really, Anakin didn't have free will after all, did he? And there's a like a yes and a no to that, right? That, okay, yes, there is a sense in which George Lucas, as the creator of the Star Wars characters and the plot and everything knew from the beginning before Anakin was even, you know, before he even took pen to paper or typewriter, whatever he did, certainly before it showed up on the, on the screens for audiences to watch, there was a sense in which Anakin had no choice, but to turn to the dark side. That was part of the story that Lucas was going to tell us that was preordained. And yet you could also say, it is equally true to say, no, in the Star Wars universe, Anakin freely chose to turn to the dark side. All right, that it, given that this world, what would it mean to say free will exists at all? Put it that way, right? To the extent that free will matters or means anything, Anakin had it. And if you want to say, well, no, but because it was a created universe, nobody has free will. Okay, you can say that. But again, that's that's sort of like a philosophical position you're taking, right? It's not obvious that that's correct, okay? And so I'm saying I think that's partly what's going on here when we look at the different biblical passages. On the one hand, God is punishing people for being sinners, and yet in other passages it looks like you know God is directly causing Pharaoh's heart to harden. And so it's like, well, so is Pharaoh responsible? And I think what theologians would say— I mean, they might use different terminology, but I think they would say, no, Pharaoh did choose to do that. It's not that God forced him to. Pharaoh is a sinner. He didn't want to let uh, you know Moses' people go, and he's a bad guy. And But yet, before the creation of the universe, God knew that was going to happen. He preordained that, that he said, yes— Part of the story I'm going to tell, part of you know his story, history, uh, is going to be that, yep, my people are going to be enslaved, and then I am going to single-handedly rescue them, and they need to learn, trust in me. I don't care how big the armies are. I don't care how abject and in misery you are. If you trust in me and I tell you I'm going to rescue you, you got to believe it. Right? Okay. And And the way to really demonstrate that is this guy who's enslaving you is not just going to let you go because we asked him nicely that he's going to hunt you down and I'm going to part the Red Sea and just you wait and see, right? And so it's like a demonstration to the tribes of Israel. No, when God has your back, you're good. Okay, another analogy I've come up with goes like this. Let's say you're in a movie theater and you see, you know, you're watching the film and then you notice this red dot that just starts moving around the screen. And at first you think, oh, geez, somebody in the theater has got a laser pointer and they're being funny guys and 
you know, I hope they stop doing this because this is going to get really distracting after a minute. But then you notice as you're sitting there looking at the thing that what the heck that wherever you move your eyes, like to be looking at a certain spot on the movie theater screen, the red dot tracks your eye movements. And at first you just think it's a coincidence, but you're sitting there doing it and you're kind of like testing it. You know, like you're, you'll be staring at something and you'll count to 15 in your head and boom, you'll dart your eyes somewhere else. And the red dot will just follow it very faithfully. And you'll, you know, you, again, you'll do like random bursts of waiting and keep moving your eyes around different sections of the screen. And the red dot just keeps tracking it perfectly. And so after a while, you're freaking out. Like, what the heck? How is it? And you're like positing all kinds of mechanisms that there must be monitors set up all over the theater that are somehow tracking my eye movements. And then they're calculating and figuring out where does the red dot need to be in order that it's where I happen to be looking. And you're just like, why would... Why is somebody signaling? Is it just that whoever's sitting in this seat, they just determined they were going to do it? Or is it about me personally? Or what the heck? Right? You'd be going through all this stuff trying to figure out how could it possibly be that I am controlling where that red dot is moving? Okay. Then suppose the more you investigate it, it turns out that no, there were no trackers in the theater. There was nothing that was like watching your eye movements or anything like that. And the film you saw, that red dot had been put into that footage, you know, back wherever the film was originally made, right? So just like the, the closing credits and all that stuff was already baked into the cake, the movement of that red dot across the screen, that was in the footage all along. And, it, and what happened is the people who made that footage just perfectly predicted where you would be sitting in the theater and where you would be looking every half second of that film and knew this is where we got to put the red dot in the footage so that this person starts to believe that he's actually controlling where the red dot's going, even though he's not. Okay, so obviously that's very unlikely. We can't conceive that humans making the film would be able to predict that with such precision, but yet in principle that could happen. Right. And imagine if the more you investigated, you convinced yourself that, no, that that really is what happened. This was just a normal film that happened to have a red dot moving all over the screen. And it just so happened, this crazy coincidence that the red dot was always going wherever I was looking. But again, when you try to figure out how could that be, you, you know, you, you start speculating and maybe you even talk to them or something. You, and you realize they somehow anticipated where I would look and then they made the film accordingly. Okay, so in that highly contrived scenario, I want to ask the question, who controlled that red dot? Did, did you control where it was? And I think as with the you know, George Lucas question, well, yes and no. It depends what do you mean. On the one hand, you could argue, no, you had nothing to do with where that red dot went. It just blindly obeyed the same laws as every other pixel on that screen or whatever, photons bouncing off, whatever you want to say, however you want to mechanically describe why is it that we're seeing that red dot up there on the screen? Oh, now it's over there. Now it's over there. And the explanation has nothing to do with your eye movements that in fact, you know, you're seeing where the red dot is. And, you know, those are two completely independent processes. You, you moving your eyes and where that red dot is in terms of just giving a mechanical explanation of its operation. However, 
there is another way of explaining the situation that's equally valid that says, yes, in a sense, you did control where that red dot is because the designers of the film anticipated the choices you would make with your eyeballs. And that's where they made sure that the red dot always was. So there is a sense in which you controlled it, right? Like if you use the red dot to uh, spell your name out in cursive, right? Like, so somebody else in the theater watching it, if they were paying close enough attention, would realize that you spelled your name out or maybe, maybe cursive would be harder. Maybe do it in regular letters, but no, you need to do it in cursive because you, you wouldn't be able to tell where the person was ending each letter if it weren't cursive, right? You know, and you spelled out, my name is Joe. It would be pretty weird to say, oh, the fact that, you know, Joe had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, no, he did. It's, he said, my name is Joe. Like, of course, Joe was in control of that thing. All right. And so I'm, I want to say, I think that kind of a story thinking along those lines has to, or sheds light on what's going on when we say there's a sense in which it sure seems like I'm in control of my body. Like, no, if I want to go, if I'm thirsty and want to drink a glass of water, it sure seems like I'm controlling my arm movements and I make my fingers wrap around the glass and I bring it up to my lips and tip it back and, and all that stuff, right? And yet, again, if you zoomed in, a physicist and a chemist and so forth, looking at at the cellular or even deeper, you know, molecular and atomic level, they wouldn't see the atoms in my body obeying a different set of rules from the atoms that weren't in my body. And just like I don't feel like I'm in control of the clouds, there's a sense in which I'm really not in control of my fingers. That no, they're all, the the constituent bits of matter that form my hand just blindly obey the laws of physics. So what are you talking about? I don't control that. Just like I don't control the molecules in the clouds. Right? And so again, so how do you reconcile that? Well, what if the designer of the physical universe who created the laws of physics perfectly anticipated what everybody, what their disembodied will would want to do and then programmed the material universe accordingly? All right, so that's you know pretty deep, and so now, um, here let me just read here as I as I wrap this episode up because this I want to just go ahead and I'll, it'll be more uh, precise if I just quote. Yet things are about to get infinitely more complicated. It's not just that God predicted what people will do at each moment along the actual timeline of the universe. In order to know which timeline to implement or actualize, God comprehended what every potential person would do in every possible scenario. Right? So again, the distinction I make there, it's not just that there's one timeline and God is looking forward and saying, okay, this is what everyone is in fact going to do along this timeline. That before knowing which timeline to go ahead and implement, first he had to make an earlier choice. He had to consider all possible timelines and all possible beings to create with all their various natures and their free wills, if they had free will. Like he could create rocks and they don't have free will, but he could create humans and they do. And you can say, well, what about dogs? Not sure. <laughs> okay, so I don't need to take a stance on that, right? But clearly humans do have free will. 
The Bible's clear on that. And so, all right, so he, God considered all possible timelines with all possible populations of beings with and without free will. And he knew, okay, given that this is, you know, the rules of operation in each of these possible timelines, how would things unfold in each potential universe I could create? All right, now I'll return to the text. After cataloging in his mind the set of all possible timelines, and remember, this isn't merely tweaking who won the 2020 election. This would include possible universes that consist of a tennis ball or contain 80 quadrillion galaxy clusters or overflow with atoms that have no electrons. God would select the single best element from the set and then instantiate it. In game theoretic terms, we could model God as considering every possible set of players and their corresponding strategy spaces, then choosing, assuming it exists, the unique game with its associated Nash equilibrium path that maximize God's objective function where God's utility is goodness. All right, so in a framework such as the above, would it be correct to say that God made the Holocaust happen? Well, yes and no. Given that God wants humans to have metaphysical free will and moral agency, it is apparently impossible for us to live in a universe without suffering. To be clear, there are no external constraints restricting what God can do. He's still omnipotent because any restraints are of his own choice since he values some ends, such as a reality that is logical, where contradictions can't exist, more than others, such as the momentary happiness of his children. With these considerations, I have shown that the libertarian in all senses of the word need not reject the biblical God out of concern for free will. All right, and then the last thing I'll say is, um, so again, with the Holocaust, like I say, did God create the Holocaust? You know, I guess like saying, did George Lucas make Darth Vader evil? Is, does that mean Anakin's not really responsible? Well, it's the same kind of thing. Or with the movie theater example, who's controlling what the red dot did? Did you do it? Or did the people who made the, the film do it, right? Okay, last thing. Uh, in closing this section, I should mention that when I first presented my movie theater analogy in blog posts and podcasts, people informed me that it was a reinvention of the doctrine of Molinism developed by the 16th century Spanish Jesuit priest Luis de Molina. Austrians may recognize the name as he is the same Molina who was a prominent member of the School of Salamanca, which Rothbard heralded as a precursor to the Austrian school that was formally launched by Menger. Okay, so thus, last thing I'll say here, in addition to early contributions to monetary theory, Molina offered an ingenious attempted reconciliation of biblical passages declaring God's sovereignty and goodness along with man's free will. All right, and William Lane Craig is one of the modern um, people who pushes Molinism. Okay, so again, I'm not... How should I put it? I have heard debates between, I think, both Calvinists and Arminians and Molinists. Um, and, and so I'm not saying in those particular debates I necessarily always agreed with. I think it was usually William Lane Craig I was listening to in, in each of those debates. I'm not necessarily saying on every single point I came down on Craig's side. And for sure, I've seen William Lane Craig when he has like a series, uh, you know, like a theological series that he's going through. He does have certain positions that I definitely disagree with, not necessarily related to Molinism per se, but I'm just saying in general, I'm not saying William Lane Craig is my go-to guy when it comes to theological issues. But what I am saying is I independently stumbled upon Molinism, and um, so I, you know, I do think that that's a 
an intellectually coherent way of trying to reconcile the data of you know biblical accounts, as it were, that in certain parts of the Bible, it seems to suggest, not to suggest, it openly states that God is directly causing things that happen, and yet at other times it seems like, oh, humans have free will. And so how can you... How can that be? How can you reconcile those things? And I, again, I think the idea of, okay, if really what happened is, yeah, every second of existence, there's a sense in which that's directly dependent upon God's will. It's not that he, you know, set the thing in motion at time zero and then sat back and unwatched it, or sorry, watched it unfold, that no, I don't think that really, that it, there's a sense in which every moment of existence is supported by God's existence himself and support um, an extension of his will. Because again, from God's point of view, there's not this gradual unfolding. He sees the whole timeline, the way the human comic book creator sees, you know, the whole existence of the story in one fell swoop from his perspective. Okay. So there's that element, but yet, it also does seem like people have free will. And so I'm saying one way of trying to understand that is if you say, okay, God logically antecedent to his creation of the actual universe considered all potential universes that he could create with all the potential beings and their associated natures and then granted them, at least in some subset of those universes, free will. You know what I mean? In other words, he considered potential universes where the creatures didn't have free will and he decided those would be inferior, according to his value scale, than other universes where some of the creatures did have free will. All right? And so when you say, you know, why do people have free will and why can they choose to do evil? Because apparently God thought that was better than a world where they can't. All right? So if you got a problem with that, talk to him. That's not my job here to defend that per se. Okay. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap. There's more in this paper I didn't get into the Hoppe stuff, but I've already reached the the limit, the time limit that I wanted to devote to this particular episode. So I'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Um, but yeah, l- later in the paper, I get into the Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics. And so Gene Callahan and I, just to give you a flavor of what it is, one of the arguments we used is to say, uh, when we were critiquing Hoppe's argumentation ethics, is to say it can't possibly be that Hoppe has given a demonstration that standard libertarian views of self-ownership are valid, not just valid, that any attempt to criticize them leads one into, into internal contradiction. We said, no, that couldn't be because look at, I could be a Christian and think ultimately God owns the universe and all material things in it. And we're just all tenants and on his property. And that one of the you know, rules, he says, yeah, you, you have spheres of autonomy and you can do things and certainly other people aren't allowed to enslave you and whatever, but you know what? I don't want you engaging in prostitution or in rampant heroin abuse. And so don't do that. That's a rule I have is the landlord, right? And he's allowed to do that. Okay. And so the way the libertarian in the Rothbardian type tradition would have to argue against that would be to first prove that that's just wrong. No, there, it's not the case that either there is a God or that if there is a God, he doesn't want you engaging in prostitution, right? 
and yet you don't see any clause like that in Hoppe's argumentation ethics, right? He didn't, he didn't start out by saying, well, let's assume there's no God. Okay. So that's just one of the arguments Gene and I use to show it's, this can be a logically complete demonstration because we're coming up with all kinds of potential counterexamples. And so, um, by the way, it's not that I think, and I don't even know if Gene thinks that the human government you know, a political state ought to exist and say, we're going to throw you in a cage if we catch you engaging in prostitution. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that wouldn't be logically impossible, right? You haven't ruled that out. And with, with Hoppe's argumentation ethics approach. Okay, so it, it can't be that he achieved what his fans think he achieved with that. So after we published that, there was commentary and response both from Block and Stefan Kinsella and others. And so that's what now in this paper that I just read you some excerpts from, I addressed their attempts to knock down what Gene and I said. But if you want to see what I said or see what they said, I refer you to the chapter. And I'll put information in the show notes page about if you want to get that. I I don't think it's physically available yet, but I'll put in any information I have. Okay, folks, thanks for tuning in. I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.